WMMC HD3 Detroit, KMPS HD3 Seattle, WBMX HD3 Boston, and on AOL Radio and Yahoo Launchcast. Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now 248 545 Soul. New SkyRadio.com. How common is it for a police officer to have a UFO sighting? How do they deal with it? As people call for government to spill the beans on UFOs, is that necessarily a good idea? Hello there, and welcome to the 450th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and those jarring questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. So we return to the UFO realm this evening with a very distinguished guest. Gary Hesseltine is a sort of UFO renaissance man for nearly 25 years of, with, with near, I'm, well, yeah, at least 25 years of police experience. He is a retired detective constable with the British Transport, Transport Police. He is also a screenwriter, author, publisher, and editor of a brand new UFO, uh, the, the brand new UFO Truth magazine. His interest stems from a childhood sighting in his native Lincolnshire in 1975 when he was 15. I was considerably older than that. He became a, an active researcher in late 2001 when he started work on the, with the uh, PRUFOS, I guess you pronounce it, the, or, or uh, the acronym for Police Reporting UFO Sightings Database. After years of research, he has assembled hundreds of cases going back to 1901 and involving over 800 British police officers. Gary was a regular contributor to UFO Magazine and later started his own online magazine called UFOMonthly.com, which ran for 41 issues. Gary then became deputy editor of UFO Data Magazine. The online UFO Truth Magazine debuted only last month at ufotruthmagazine.com. Gary was a great help during our own Return to Rendlesham radio series in 2010 and 2011, and he has appeared on many international radio and television shows. As a screenwriter, he is working on several movie and television projects, including a feature film about the Rendlesham Forest UFO incidents of 1980. He lectures regularly throughout the British Isles and in the U.S., including the National Press Club in Washington, where he was presented with a prestigious Disclosure Award by UFO expert Steve Bassett, who has also been a guest on the show several times. So, Gary Hesseltine, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you. That was a glowing tribute introduction. <laughs> well, good. well deserved. Well deserved. We try. So, I understand you're working with uh, Colonel Charles Halt on uh, the Rendlesham movie, and he was deputy commander of the nearby... Uh, air base at the time of the UFO incidents. So how's that going? Well, it, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I certainly think that uh, because I've just retired, I retired as of March the 31st. Congratulations. That, thank you. Uh, one of the things, I've retired early. I, sh- I could have stayed a lot longer, but I've retired, uh, retired early because I'd, I want to devote the rest of my life to the UFO subject. Um, and I feel the time is right now. But going back to your question... Uh, I only retired on March the 31st, but one of my intentions for the rest of 2013 is to, now the shackles are off, as it were, and I was under a lot of pressure from work, I was uh, under a lot of restrictions, Uh, I was disciplined uh, because of my beliefs, uh, that people aren't generally aware of this, uh, in the last few years of my research, so that's one of the reasons why I left. Uh, but now, now that I've retired, I can say anything, do anything. So I will spend the, be much more proactive in trying to seek interest for the film. Uh, where we are at the moment is I've worked with Colonel Holt, retired. He was then, uh, in time of the incident, the Lieutenant Colonel. I've worked with him for over five years. 
in, in a dialogue where I've written a, uh, a film uh, screenplay. Well, I've now got two versions. I've now got a feature film, character-driven story, a theatrical film, as it were, for the cinema. Uh, and two, also got a version which is uh, a blow-by-blow docudrama uh, kind of TV series. Uh, I've been putting this out and developing it over five years. Um, and it's now got to the stage where quite a few screenwriters that I've put it to are saying that you've got two definite uh, uh, things there uh, to work on. You've definitely got a film version now and you've definitely got a, a, a series. Uh, so, so, so really, it's at the stage now. When, when I was in the police, I only chipped away at the screenwriting of the, of the story for obvious reasons. I was a detective and you had to work around the clock sometimes and that was your primary job over and above my proof force research etc etc but obviously i knew that um, in retirement then i could pursue it a lot more but i've also got it to the standard where i'm now happy to say it's there or thereabouts uh, to go to uh, production companies uh, producers directors etc um, what i would say is that since i've retired uh, people who i've met in the media shall we say uh, over the last uh, three or four years have now come back out of the blue and contacted me because I've obviously realized I've retired and now I've got more freedom and and, and are and asking for updates where we are with the script um, so basically it's in an early stages but I do sense that uh, there is maybe much more of an opportunity this year to make some kind of breakthrough it's there it's available and if you think about I mean, I've two things that I have done. Uh, one, uh, in preparation for pitching this, is that um, I've employed a graphic artist to do some uh, artwork, concept artwork, posters, uh, key scenes, uh, some uh, storyboarding, uh, which would obviously come in handy. Um, I can also tell you that... Um, I've, potentially, I, I've got a, uh, a very well-known international uh, film composer who writes uh, his films, uh, uh, music, uh, ready to do a, to do the the uh, soundtrack, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also uh, been developing a business plan uh, because if you think about the Rendlesham case, it's kind of unique that, in the sense that the base is still there. It's closed, but it's now a business park. But essentially, the runway is still there. All the major buildings are there. All mm-hmm. the hangars are there, and the one of the one of the key places that would be in the film is the weapon storage area. Is still there. Uh, the tower's still there within the weapon storage area, which is a key feature at one point. Um, the forest is still there. The farmers' field is still there. The second farmers' field. Yeah, is we, we were just there ourselves. So that's what I'm saying. The, yeah. the infrastructure is already there. So in a sense, you know, that's that's half the battle if you were trying to work out costs on a production, etc. So uh, altogether, I think we're now looking at quite a a powerful um, pitch if we can meet the right people. And I know that you have a very large uh, uh, listenership, shall we say, and uh, who knows who's listening. Uh, but I would certainly be happy to speak to anyone. But I, I, I do think that, uh, if there's going to be a breakthrough, it'll be in the next 12 months. Oh, that that sounds wonderful. Well, we'll certainly uh, keep tabs on it with you as we go and uh, give you all the support we can on that. It just sounds terrific. It's high time someone did that. 
Well, the, the, the reason, and I've always said this, is um, whilst obviously a lot of American people will associate with Roswell and say that's a fantastic case, which it is, it's a, it's a case that's uh, very old now. Many of the participants have sadly passed away, etc., uh, etc. Et and also there was a very good TV movie done by Paul Davids. Uh, but the Rendlesham case is a little bit different in the sense that we now have confirmed UFO activity over three successive nights, which doesn't happen very often. We've got documentary evidence, and I come at this from an evidential police point of view. Sure. We've got documentary evidence in the form of the Holt Memorandum. Well, how many uh, military documents have, uh, have come forward over 60 years where the deputy base commander of what was a nuclear facility says that uh, in the first paragraph there were some of his men... Uh, came across a landed triangular craft. In the second paragraph, say that um, there were trace evidence left, indentations, uh, Geiger counter readings, etc., etc. And in the third paragraph, actually says that he himself saw multiple UFOs on the night he was out. So that doesn't happen very often. Not at all. So, so for me, that's what raises it above Roswell, in my opinion. And I, I, I tend to agree i think in the roswell situation everything it was important it was significant everything is second hand however whereas as you say in the rendlesham case the the eyewitnesses are still there so and, and as you know and you were one of the many not one of the eyewitnesses but you were one of the folks who appeared on on our series on that uh th that involved yeah. uh, just about everyone every major player in that case so so that, that that sounds like a wonderful project and we'll be following you all through that Alrighty. so uh, can you tell us about the sighting that first interested you in ufos yeah, uh, my original sighting was when I was 15. I was with the, my then-girlfriend. It was a lovely, warm August night. Uh, not a uh, cloud in the sky, one of those balmy summer nights, which you don't actually get very often in England. Uh, so, uh, so we were walking uh, along a what was a narrow, long footpath that divided a series of gardens. In England, you call them allotments. I don't know what you call them in the U.S., but it's like people work on their own little patches, uh, vegetable patches, that kind of thing. Mm, and community the other gardens. Side, yeah, and on the other side was the my what you would say high school fields. Uh, it was total darkness, but in the distance we could see uh, housing, uh, effectively at the end of the fields and at the end of the gardens. So as we're walking effectively down this uh, narrow path between the two, uh, we become aware that there is an extremely or an extremely bright white light at about 60 degree angle ahead of us traveling from our right to left against the backdrop of uh, of lots of stars not a cloud uh it was a, at a relatively low altitude uh, you know i wouldn't have said no more than five thousand feet uh but there was no noise we watched it and as the object passed by us if you can imagine the path stretching out in front of us the object passing over us, so then we were behind its flight path. Well, as soon as we were behind its flight path, all the housing in the distance, there was a power cut. Mm. Rightly or wrongly, the girl that I was with, who was called Dawn, I won't give a surname out and embarrass her, but her name was Dawn, um, but basically she became very frightened and immediately associated the light with somehow causing the power cut. Now, at that stage, we were just in awe, watching this strange event. I had no interest in the subject up to that point. Well, as we watched, the there was a second power cut in the housing behind its flight path. 
So basically, if you think back to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, there's a, there's a bit where Richard Dreyfus early on in the movie, is overlooking the town and sees the power grid going off. Sure. It, yeah. it was kind of like that, but it <laughs> predated the movie. Now, what happened was that I had my bicycle with me at the time, uh, which we would, which I was pushing as we were walking back. So I said, get on the bike, and in a Lincolnshire term, we call it croggering. And so two of us were on the bike. I rushed and, and rode down the end of the alleyway, turned right a couple of times, and eventually got to her house, which was in complete darkness. I dropped her off and said, I'm going to try to get ahead of this light, because it was moving very slowly in the direction of my home in an area called Ashby which is a suburb of Scunthorpe where I lived. And so basically that's what I did. I dropped her off and then rode like Matt back down the uh, same alleyway we did originally under sighting. And eventually I get to this kind of bizarre situation where I'm in complete darkness, imagine total power failure, all housing in distance. And then in the by the corner near to where I lived, I could see that the lighting was on, the electricity was on. And as I got to that corner... I was able to look over on my right shoulder and I have this distinct memory of looking over my right shoulder and noticing that the object was slightly behind me, moving very slowly. Mm. And so in a sense, I, because of the angle and the shortcut that I'd taken, I was now just ahead of it and hence why the power was on. Or so I reasoned. So basically, I remember glancing over to my right, seeing the object going round three corners from that corner where the light was on. I dropped my bike outside my front door. I rushed in to the front room where my parents were having a cup of tea, supper time. Uh, so I guess it must have been anywhere between eight, half nine in the evening. And I said, come outside. I think there's going to be a power cut caused by this strange light. And they just looked at me bemused, as you would. Didn't <laughs> move. Uh, not surprising. So basically, I just ran out through the hall, through the kitchen, out into the back garden, turned around to face back, looking at my house, just in time to see the object, which was now higher in the altitude, but the same object moving silently above my rooftop. I was in the garden. I put my arm directly straight up above my head to create a 90-degree kind of thing. And as soon as that object moved past me, so I was then behind it, guess what? The entire area cut off, power cut. Now, how, from a second geographical position, could I predict a power cut? I can't. So basically, it told me then that that light must have had some interaction with the power grid, because how could I predict that to the very moment? Obviously, that's, yeah. That's, yeah. that's what created my interest. Unfortunately, in 1975, pre-video, well, just prior to the uh, Betamax and uh, uh, etc., the, the uh, cassette, big cassettes coming in, video cassettes, VHS... All you could do when I tried to research anything, there was no documentaries on the TV in England at that time. So all I could do was go to a, a second-hand bookshop, and the, the the and and I and I kind of think that this is part of the destiny as to what's led me on this strange path. Is the first book that I came across was by Donald Kehoe. Oh, I'm so, I, I'm so fascinated here. I forgot we have a break, so uh, oh, we'll oh, be right oh. back on Behind the Paranormal right. with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS Two Sky Radio with Gary Hesseltine. Stay with us. Enlighten, empower, enrich. This is CBS Radio's The New Sky. New horizons, no boundaries. All I can say is that my life is pretty plain. I like watching. 
is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOL. New skyradio.com. Believe. Welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. And we are chatting with our wonderful guest, Gary Hesseltine, about his harrowing adventures in... I can't think of another H word to describe UFOs, extraterrestrials, whatever. Well, whatever, but uh, Gary was describing his first experience at the age of 15. And Gary, please, uh, before you were interrupted by the break, you were describing this sort of coming over your house and the power shenanigans going on. Please continue. Yeah, well, as I say, once the power had gone out, uh, I mean, we weren't on the phone. That's how backward I was, really. (laughs) The nearest phone was about 10 minutes away in a shop. I remember those days. Yeah, well, it's hard for people to believe that, but uh, literally, who would I have rang anyway? I mean, I didn't have a clue about the subject, uh, and my parents just said, no, it must be a coincidence. So I didn't even I didn't even report anything, and do you know, I didn't even look in the paper the next day, because they, they, they just kind of like poo-pooed it. Mm-hmm. But it must have resonated somewhere, because in the next few weeks after that, as I said, the only thing I could really do was look for uh, books, and, and, I, and I do look at I'd never heard of the word synchronicity, but as my life has gone on in this subject, I, I've come across many things that have apparent synchronicity. And one of them, I think, is the fact that the first book that I found was by Donald Keogh, and it was Flying Saucers Are Real. And uh, straight away I came across a reference about uh, not only were pilots chasing these things, and he was a major, uh, and he'd written five books, it was his last book, Mm-hmm. And, uh, and basically, I came across this reference to power cuts during the New York blackout to UFOs. And, oh, yes. Uh, 1965 blackout. Yeah, I think that was 65. And I thought, well, this kind of validates possibly what I'd seen because, as I say, I had no interest whatsoever in the subject up to that point. But, but basically, how else could you explain it? How, from a second geographical position, could I predict to the very moment that it would be a power cut? It's ridiculous. So mm-hmm. that... That object must, by anybody's uh, logical deduction, must have had some interaction with the power grid. Yeah, apparently, apparently. 
Uh, I did want to ask you, and Ben's got another question here. But, I do indeed. Yes, but, but uh, when you were having that experience, and the reason I ask this question is because people very often will will tell us that they feel when they're having an, ex- an experience, particularly their first UFO experience, that it's very somehow very personal. They feel some sort of connection. I, I remember one fellow in uh, in down near New York City told us that he felt as though he was being tested by this. And it was in the similar situation to yours. It was over his house and there were neighboring houses and this sort of thing. But he felt as though it was, there was some sort of personal connection there. Did you ever have any, any, any feeling of that kind when you were... Uh... The honest answer is no. Uh, other okay. than nervousness, perhaps uh, wonderment, excitement as you naturally feel when you see something that you can't explain. Sure. Uh, no, the, 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 the basic answer is no. Uh, uh, but I just knew that that object caused the power cuts because how could I predict it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think when I, I came across the book and references to the 65 blackout, then, then it kind of validated that maybe these things were real. So I started then collecting books and I soon gathered quite a, 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 a well, 15, 20 book collection. But it was really, uh, I think what's really strange is the fact that there's then a very big gap in my life. I think for the next so from the age of, say, 15 to 18, I collected books, read everything I could. Um, but I joined a, 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 what was Bufora, the British Bufora Research Association. Mm-hmm. Got my card as an, a, as an affiliate member. I once went to a, a UFO local group meeting, but to be fair, they all looked a bit crazy, so I didn't go. <laughs> um, so, so I never got involved in any kind of active research. But in a strange kind of way, it's obviously been there in the back of my mind because what's happened is that there's then a very big gap in my life, uh, literally from the age of 18 until, I would say, the mid-1990s when I come across uh, this glossy magazine in uh, a big famous uh, W.H. Smith's outlet in, uh, at Leeds Railway Station, uh, and it was just looked like any other glossy magazine and, and and it was about UFOs, and I thought, wow, this subject has moved on a bit. I'd never seen that before, and it turned out to be UFO magazine by the by Graham Birdsell, who sadly passed away. Oh uh, yes, in in uh, 2003. But he was a great man, and uh, that was a really very good, non-sensationalistic, scientific approach, uh, common sense approach to the subject. Looked at the evidence of pilots, etc. Uh, and, and that's what really kicked off my modern interest. And the more I then delved and got the new set of books that had been written in that intervening 18 years, or 15, 17, 18 years, basically I was still reading about pilots chasing UFOs and shooting at them and, and space and, uh, and uh, uh, radar operators and uh, astronauts and cosmonauts making positive comments about ET reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I kept thinking, well, what the hell's happening? You know, um, it doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, surely if a pilot knows where he's chasing, especially if he's in broad daylight, if not, he shouldn't be flying. You know, but it was, it was, it was being ridiculed in the media. So basically, that second act then led me to start delving further. I then had a dream, which sounds crazy, but I had a dream. Oh, and I came, crazy us. Well, I had a dream where I woke up with a very vivid scenario for a blockbuster Hollywood-style uh, film uh, based on what would cause 
the American government to, to finally reveal all it knew. And so it was that kind of storyline. And uh, basically, I wrote a screenplay. I didn't have a clue about writing a screenplay. I'd never written a thing in my life. But within six weeks, I had the very first draft. And I'd six worked weeks. out the beginning, middle and an end, which is bizarre. It is bizarre. And, uh, and so at the end of that, seeking validation, I then approached the editor of UFO magazine, Graham Birdsell, and said, nervously, will you just read this? You'll probably think it's rubbish. But he read it, and, and he actually rang me up about three weeks later, out the blue, and said, it's brilliant, it'd make a great film, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and, and, and so, again, it was pulling me into the subject. He then said, well, why don't you come to a conference, listen to some people, and there, as it happened, uh, I listened to John Mack, um, at a conference, uh, the Harvard professor who believed in yeah, inductions, yeah. yeah. So, so I, I just felt myself being pulled into the subject, and then it was really just a question of, well, I want to get involved, but what can work around me? I'm no good to a group because you can't rely on me because I'm a detective and you work strange hours. Uh, so I figured I had to do something by myself. So I then had a second dream, and I don't usually remember my dreams, but the the dream was write about police officers, write about what you know, which is actually what many people say about writers anyway, write about what you know. Yeah. And uh, and so basically that's what I did. I, I went back to Brian Birdsell and said, look, I've had this idea for a database, unofficial database for police officers to report UFOs. What do you think? Can I write an article for you? And he went, yeah, because obviously he was trying to get any credibility and I was a detective and so it was a credible source. So... He said, yeah, you can write an article. Now, I'd never written anything that had been published in my life. So for me, it was a major thrill in January 2002 when that article was published. And hey, presto, all these years later, I've, I've suddenly been given evidence on behalf of police officers all around the world at the citizens' hearings, uh, which was a couple of years ago, which was an incredible honour. So, yeah, well, I wanted to ask about that, too. I mean, been a chance to continue with his questions here, though. But uh, well, we only have like two minutes left of the next break. Well, that's true. So go ahead, Gary. Uh, <laughs> finish the story. Well, well, I'm just saying that it's kind of when I talk about synchronicities, it, it, it seems quite bizarre. But there's been specific steps in my life that have led me to the point of where I actually became involved in research. So and in so a way, perhaps there was a personal connection. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I can't rule that out, but I'm not aware of it at the time. But something obviously very deep and profound happened enough to be awakened or to be laid dormant, ready to be awakened at some point when mm. I was then ready as a mature man to get involved in the subject. And, and you know, so that's, that's why I've been drawn in. And I think if you speak to other researchers... You know, you, you, you study this subject, the more you look at it, the more evidence that you find, the more you get pulled into it. And it gets mm -hmm. under your skin, and, and that's exactly what's happened to me. No, we do hear that, but it certainly sounds as though uh, you've got, you know, fit like a glove as far as your situation was concerned. Absolutely. Well, bizarre. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we are going to take a break again. I'm sorry, there are a lot of breaks, but we will, what we will do is uh, be right back with Gary Hesseltine. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS New Sky Radio. Stick with us. Enlighten. Empower. Enrich. This is CBS Radio's The New Sky. New horizons. No boundaries.
Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOUL. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. Oh, I guess I'm doing the intro again. Welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. And with us is Gary Hesseltine, and we're going to continue with our uh, contemporary questions. So yes. not, uh, well, let's give Gary a chance to talk about his website and right. stuff first, and then we'll, you know, we can take it away. Yes. Gary, please take it away. All right. Uh, one of the reasons, like I said early on in the introduction, one of the reasons why um, I've decided to quit now is because something tells me that the time is right to do it now. And um, basically, about a year ago, I was over at the Exo Politics Conference in Liverpool doing a lecture, and I, I came up with the idea of of floating past some of the speakers that were there, uh, the idea that in retirement, I was already thinking about retirement, that I'd like to uh, create an online magazine um, featuring what I would consider most, as many of the top researchers in the world, uh, if they would take part. And they all said it was a good idea. And I'd had the idea of creating the magazine. Uh, It'll be bi-monthly and... The website is now up and running, and it's uh, all you have to do is put UFO Truth magazine into Google, and it'll take you straight there. Uh, and basically, the mag- the web, the 
the website's all up and running, ready to take subscriptions. The actual first issue is not out until the 25th of June. There is a little sampler nine-page magazine that you can just look at if you wish, download for free. Uh, the magazine will cost, in English money, £4 an issue, So, uh, but over a course of a year, we're doing a special early offer, basically £16 for first year. Uh, so we say, you know, so it's not a lot of money. But the reason why I've, I've decided to charge for an online magazine is, is because what I want to do, which is a bit different. A third of all monies raised through subscriptions, I will pledge for UFO causes. I'm not after making money. I'm not after fame and fortune in that sense. Uh, I want to help the subject. So a third of all monies raised through subscriptions will be set aside for UFO causes. And what I mean by UFO causes, initially uh, the money will be used to as a funding mechanism to provide venues in the UK to promote the subject in the UK because that's necessary first. We need to establish that uh, and take it around the country as it were. Uh, but beyond that, the more people subscribe to the magazine, the bigger the pot of money is. For example, if you had, say, 5,000 people, that would generate roughly uh, um, £100,000 in UK money. So that's £33,000 in the pot. And uh, basically, it's not going to take all that for the UK. So basically, if there's a MUFON want to do a, uh, a forensic test on a cattle, uh, on a dead cow and they need the money, then in theory they can uh, contact me and say, you know, would you give us a contribution or help towards the cost? That's what I mean by the more people we do it, the more people it benefits the subject. Now, what I've done is I've approached many of the world's top researchers, and if you look at the list of people that are going to be regular columnists, it's extensive, AJ Javad in Brazil, uh, Julio Chamorro, who's a, a colonel in the uh, Peruvian Air Force, or was retired in Peru. You've got uh, Pia Nudson from Denmark. You've got Peter Robbins from the US. Uh, you've got um, people from Ireland, people from Australia, Bill Chalker from Australia. Um, I've, I've tried to make it as worldwide as possible to try to expand the readership. It's only going to be in English, but... The idea is that if you're getting the top researchers to be on board and there'll be guest contributions from the likes of Steve Bassett, uh, Richard Dolan, Grant Cameron, um, uh, George Filer, as I saw him at the Citizens' Hearings mm. and asked him if I could use some of his material from Filer's files. He said, yes, as long as you credit it to him, which I obviously would do. Um, you know, there's a, there's a whole host of people. Just have a look at the list. He's very Robert Salas with his, uh, obviously, his uh, nukes, stories, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. So Ted Phillips, the ground trace specialist, he's now on board. Uh, so there's, there's the a whole... last week. You know, so it's a, it's a, it's a long list now. And uh, the idea is that this will hopefully be the biggest and best selection of top current researchers in the world of ufology. So they can all write. And the beauty is that there's no overheads as such. Uh, and the technology has changed. When I did a, a little online magazine uh, after Graham Birdsell had died in 2003. I did UFOMonthly.com. I didn't have a clue about putting a magazine together. didn't have a clue about graphics, et cetera, et cetera. But I learned, and I it's, did that. It's very interesting. Speaking as, as, a, as a, among other things, a professional magazine editor, it's yeah. very attractive. Well, 
the but then what I'm saying is between 2004 and 2007, when I first did it, people would say to me, well, I don't like reading off a computer screen. Uh, or, Can you print it out? And then, of course, you get all the associate costs with printing, uh, which are exorbitant. Uh, but now, with the invention of tablet and uh, smartphone technology, people are happy to read off their iPhone, I, off to the, the tablet, their iPod, etc. So now there's not a problem in the page turns, just like a book, and, mm. and, and, and everybody's happy. So the time is now. Well, if you've no overheads, that means you can devote that third of monies to, for, for causes. And, and all the people are doing it for free, uh, the columnists, etc., until such points as trigger points are reached. And, and that's common sense, that basically if the magazine reaches a 1,000, it will trigger a, a payment level for a columnist story. And similarly, if you reach another level, it will trigger more. So it's on that kind of basis. So yeah. it's not for, the money is not really for me. It's about trying to make a difference and trying to create a magazine, universal magazine. Now, no disrespect to other magazines. There's some printed magazines all around the world. That's fine. They, they let them get on with it. But I don't think any of them, having looked at their uh, columnist lists, are as strong as what I've put together. So if you really are into the subject, these are the current people, many of which were at the citizens' hearings, which I think we're going to be talking about shortly. Yes. You know, so this is really, I'm hoping, going to be the top magazine. Very good. Ben, take it away. Alrighty, so you mentioned, um, actually, I think it was before the break, about the citizens' hearings. So, do you want to talk about that a little bit? What it was it? What it's about, and what it's uh, what's the word? Uh, yeah, what it's about. There we well, go. Well, the the citizens' hearings were put together by Steve Massett, the PRG. Uh, I'm sure you've had Steve on several times. I think you did say he's been on many times. Oh yes. Yeah. And basically, the idea was if Congress won't hold uh, open hearings, then the people will. And so, yes, while it was a mock hearing, uh, it was done before a former senator and five former congressmen and women. And it was held at the prestigious Washington Press Club two weeks ago. It ran for a week. Uh, I was one of the witnesses. As there were about 40 witnesses, which was a mixture of, of uh, world-renowned uh, researchers and also pilots, etc., recounted their experiences. So it was a mixture, and basically it was it was done as a courtroom, a mock courtroom. And what I can tell you, having been a detective for many years, it achieved that brilliantly. And and, and if you saw the impact of that, um, in, in terms of I was there for virtually all of the sessions, and it really was just like a courtroom, and people had to take an oath uh, uh, to swear in their evidence before the uh, Congress people and the Senator. And basically, it was all done very formally and properly. And it, all the evidence was given very solemnly, as you would do in a court of law. So from that point of view, it was as near as damn it. And, and having been, obviously, in court many, many times, I can uh, obviously vouch for the fact that it was very close. The only thing that was different is you don't get the... Uh, clapping at the end of a lecture uh, in, a, in a normal courtroom. Uh -huh. uh, but uh, basically people had should have had about 10 minutes each to give their testimony about what they were going to say. In my case, I, uh, Steve asked me to speak about police officer sightings worldwide because obviously the database I have is fairly unique. There isn't another one in the world um, as such, uh, run by either a servant or retired police officer. There is another one in Australia, which is pretty good, but it's not by a servant or retired officer. So basically, 
uh, he asked me, well, could you add on other cases from around the world? So I did a few, uh, some cases from America and some from Belgium because you basically only had 10 minutes to give your word-for-word -word speech, which you'd obviously had to hand in prior to it. So they all had copies, all the panel members had copies, etc. And it was done very, very properly. And, uh, and, uh, and coming from that is, whilst it was disappointing that the mass media, mainstream media weren't there, uh, in numbers, um, it doesn't matter because the bottom line was here we are talking to a panel of a, a senator, former senator, and six congressmen and women, and they their reaction over the week was pretty amazing. On the first day, uh, at the end of hearing basically six seven hours of testimony, uh, former congresswoman Kilpatrick, Carolyn Kilpatrick, stood up and basically said, "I'm blown away by this." And you've already, in one day's testimony, told me that we should have open congressional hearings. Well, that was kind of a eureka moment because it led to a spontaneous round of applause and Steve came into the room and everybody's whatever. And that was to be there was actually had the kind of airs on the back of your neck. And uh, I think that was a significant moment. And by the end of the week, the, the panel all were in agreement that uh, that there should be congressional hearings uh, but also said that really the place to deal with this subject is to approach the UN uh, and I think that's what Steve is is, is trying to get uh, a motion together to approach the UN but what we need is a uh, a country a just one country to nominate it uh, so we can get it uh, to approach the UN now uh, I'm sure you're aware that the South American countries, uh, China, and possibly Russia are far more open open on the subject than what the American uh, government is. Absolutely. So, you know, I honestly believe that there is a chance, and that's all it is, a chance, but I think we're closer to that as a result of having those hearings, um, that we'll maybe get some, maybe one, two, three South American countries, I suspect, making motions to the UN and once that happens all it's going to do is trigger a, an already present um, um, agenda that was set in 1978 when the Grenada president Eric Geary last had a UN debate on it which mm. I think Stanton Friedman was involved in. Uh, that raises all sorts of other questions. I'm going to have to erupt, interrupt yeah. you again Gary. Yeah. I'm sorry we have another break, final break of the show. And you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS New Sky Radio with our guest Gary Hesseltine, and we'll be right back. Stay with us. Enlighten, empower, enrich. This is CBS Radio's The New Sky. New horizons, no boundaries.
is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOL. New skyradio.com. Welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno with our guest, Gary Heseltine. We are talking of the citizens' hearings held in the U.S. and in Washington, yeah. In Washington. And maybe even going to... Uh, after well, mo- sort of a mock trial, maybe even going to the UN after this. Well, th- there is uh, Gary some some other point of view here. Um, I'm looking at a quote from Alexander Alexandra Petri of the Washington Post, who apparently was at the hearings. "Quote: The event reminded me of trying to climb into an M.C. Escher painting. Once you're climbing up the never-ending dream stairs, you can get going, keep going in a circular movement forever." Unquote. I'm entirely sure what she means, but it doesn't sound all that wonderful. Um, again, that's a typical comment, not only from skeptics, but uh, from some of my colleagues in the media. I also understand that the members of Congress were paid to be there. I mean, what say you? I, I, I would have thought, and I might be wrong in this, that anybody of sufficiently high status in uh, the world of politics will probably get a parent's fees for turning up and opening a supermarket. So I really don't see the issue there. But, of course, the sceptical media have got to have something to go at, so they concentrate on 20 grand. For me, it's it's, what the hell? The point is they did not come into that as believers in any way whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And you had to be there. This is what I say. when when There was one particular moment where um, uh, Congressman Merrill Cook, I think it was the Thursday, the fourth day of the hearings, uh, he heard testimony from a pilot called uh, Colonel Oscar Santa Maria of Peru, who basically was sent up to uh, get into a dogfight with a UFO, a structured machine that outpaced his aircraft and he shot 54, uh, 64 rounds of it, uh, which didn't affect it in any way, performed amazing manoeuvres, and I think it lasted something like 20 minutes, the dogfight. He couldn't get near it, and this was in daylight. And uh, so, you know, that's pretty spectacular. And and uh, Congressman Merrill Cook, uh, who had been, I think, holding on to the belief that there had to be other explanations, when he heard that testimony, if you looked at his body language, his jaw was on the floor. <laughs> because there you have testimony from a direct witness who's had millions of dollars or equivalent spent on his flight education with thousands of hours saying to him that he flew a plane that shot at a UFO that he couldn't get near that it was structured blah 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 now you can't get better testimony than that and that's why his jaw was on the floor so when you kind of were there and saw that uh, there's no two ways about it those people at the end were 
I think by day two, it was almost brain overload because none of them expected the, the depth of the quality of the evidence that we presented by pilots, by military officials, by police officers, etc., etc. It was brilliant. And where else would you ever hear a debate, hypothetical or not, uh, where, where else would you get a senator or congressman talking about UFOs shooting, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, planes and vice versa? You'd never get that in the mainstream. So I'd have given them $50,000 if it got them into that debate. And well, for, I, I tend to, to agree. Is brilliant. This is what this is what I hear as well, that, that when people who are usually not exposed to this in, in positions of responsibility and leadership they didn't are exposed to they, they, they do. They, they are overwhelmed by it. And, Absolutely. And they did not have a clue. Honestly, they did not have a clue. They were nice, proper people who went into that thinking, yeah, I'm going to listen to a bit of evidence, so-called evidence. And by day two, it, you could see them. They were almost, I would say, resigned almost to the point of embarrassment that what we were showing them was factual in nature, wasn't made up by lunatics, and it was all evidential. Well, for me as a police officer, that's what we should do. And at one point in my testimony during the Q&A, I actually said when I think it was Congressman Woolsey, uh, I think, said, uh, got into a philosophical debate, where they're from, blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, we're actually, we're here for five days to talk about the evidence. This is our one chance to present the evidence. So that's what we should focus on. Uh, and, you know, and that was important. And, and honestly... It was brilliant, and uh, the fact that the mainstream media want to poke fun at it is because they have to work to an agenda. Uh, That's true. And, and there is a clear, absolutely clear link. It's not conspiratorial. It's a clear evidential link to show that in 1953, the Robertson panel said, we're going to engage with the media to dumb down this subject. And ever since, that's what's happened. So that's what they do. And the people are right just carry on the line thinking, well, there's nothing to it. Well, there will never be anything to it unless somebody takes a stand and says, there is something to it. And that was our opportunity to create a window of opportunity to present some evidence. That's why it was worth paying 20 grand, just mm. to get them in that room. I would have paid 50 grand. Okay. Jeez. Well, since considering we have about less than four minutes left, and I guess I'll bring bring up this one point last time we had steve bassett on actually we had him on a few times but um he uh we had, we posed a question to him saying uh, if the government really does know anything about ufos suppose the truth is so terrible that people wouldn't be able to handle it would you still want disclosure uh yes yes for the simple reason is i think there were genuine grounds after the second world war that if roswell was real which i believe was real uh, uh, that they suddenly became definitely aware that someone was watching us from afar, uh, then that could be a game changer. There'd be the fear of a third world war, they're into the Cold War era. You know, I think there may well have been genuine reasons then for keeping the subject secret. But after the collapse of the Soviet Empire, uh, early 91, 92, then it doesn't add up anymore. And I think in the end, what Steve says is absolutely right. I think the people can handle it now. And all the Gallup polls that are run every few years come back 60%, 70% saying we believe that there is something being covered up. And, okay. but, but it doesn't make sense. So, yes, I think we should be told. 
Well, Gary, we're, we're flat out of time here, and we're definitely going to have you back because we have a lot of deeper questions about the Anytime phenomenon. you put me on, I'll we'd, love to get you, uh, we'd love to get you on again about that. So, everybody, Gary Hesseltine, ufotruthmagazine.com. Check it out. Gary, we'll be in touch with you off the air, and we'll uh, get something going here. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. For Thanks for staying up so late. No, nah, no problem. It's a pleasure. All right, so check out our websites, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find nearly 500 free podcasts of all of our past shows. Also, check out our site at www.NewEnglandGhosts.com, where you are, where there are case studies and photos, along with articles by my dad. And if you buy my books on either of those sites, you will help keep those podcasts free. So many thanks to our producer, Brandon Jackson, and we will see you right here next weekend, where we will have a open line show or an open line show excuse my grammar so get your questions in via the online form at behindtheparanormal.com or email to paul at behindtheparanormal.com and in the meantime tune into our boston providence drive time show on woon 1240 a.m and com at 6 p.m eastern time every monday and check out again those lots and lots of podcasts 500 of behindtheparanormal.com we leave you this evening with a thought from the great british author c.s lewis if the whole universe has no meaning, why we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. I'm Paul Eno. I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time. <laughs>